Brought to you by GSK. If we map the genetics of a disease, could we change its course? At GSK, we know the information encoded in our genes provides vital knowledge, so we're working with partners to decode it. Using technology like an advanced search engine, we can spot the patterns that lead to diseases like Parkinson's or Alzheimer's. Because by identifying the patterns that cause disease, we hope to transform how patients are treated in the future. Well, welcome everyone to another debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan of ABC News, and again, it is my honor to be serving as moderator as the four debaters you see sharing the stage with me here at the Skirball Center for the Performing Arts at New York University. Two against two will be debating this motion, Treat Terrorists Like Enemy Combatants, Not Criminals. Now, this is a debate. There will be a winner and a loser, and you, our audience, will be serving as the judges. By the time the debate has ended, we will have asked you to vote twice, once both before the debate and once again after you have heard the arguments. And the team that has changed the most minds, once we see where you stand on the motion, that team will be declared our winner. So, on to the debate. Round one, opening statements by each debater in turn. Our motion is, treat terrorists like enemy combatants, not criminals. And I would like to introduce our first debater arguing for this motion, Mark Thiessen, who is a columnist for The Washington Post, a former speechwriter for President George Bush. He came out with a book this year that was a stiff defense of the interrogation methods used by the CIA, and it sold really, really well, actually. Mark, congratulations to you. So a lot of people liked it. Your critics don't like it. They, I think Jane Mayer of The Washington Post calls it the the Bible for the Torture Apologist. Is, is that fair? No, not at all. <laughs> okay, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> I'm surprised you said that. Mark Thiessen. Thank you, John. I'd like to start by asking members of the audience a question. With a show of hands, how many of you remember exactly where you were when the attacks of September 11? Good. Let the record show it's everybody. Okay. I want you to think back to that time. I was in the Pentagon on September 11, 2001. I was blessed not to be at the point of impact, but I was a few corridors down. And I remember feeling the the building shudder. I remember the smell. And the one thing I remember very distinctly is that the alarms never went off, the evacuation alarms. We all just sort of filed out of the building and went out to the lawn and looked back at the broken and burning Pentagon. But in the months that followed, the alarms went off a bunch of times as false reports of impending attacks kept coming in. And every time, the whole building, we would all evacuate waiting for the attack that never came. Why did that attack never come? I would submit to you there are only two possibilities. Either the terrorists lost interest in attacking us again, or we found out what their plans were and stopped them from carrying them out. Mike Hayden and I will argue tonight that the latter is the case. Uh, We will argue that the reason that attack did not happen is because we abandoned the law enforcement approach to, to, to terrorism that failed to stop the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, that failed to stop the attack on the USS Cole that failed to stop the the attacks of 9-11, that we abandoned that approach and began to treat terrorists as enemy combatants and not criminals. In those early days after 9-11, we knew almost nothing about the enemy who had attacked us. We did not know that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was the mastermind of 9-11. He wasn't even on our org charts. And unbeknownst to us, there were two terrorist networks out there at large planning new attacks. The KSM network that had planned and carried out 9-11, and the Hambali Network, which was a cell of Southeast Asian terrorists that KSM had organized because he knew we'd be on the lookout for Arab men. We did not know any of it. And then we started capturing terrorists. When KSM was captured and brought into custody, he was asked about upcoming attacks. And you know what he said? I'll tell you everything when I get to New York and see my lawyer. Ladies and gentlemen, 
our opponents tonight would have granted that request. This debate is about more than Miranda rights. The, uh, the Obama administration has eliminated the CIA program, but at least they're killing terrorists using predator drones, right? No, 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 so our opponents, that's illegal too. But that, was, that, that program has killed half of the al-Qaeda leadership, and it is probably the only thing standing between us and another 9-11. So finally, I'd just like to ask you, keep in mind, if you would like to keep killing terrorists with predator drones, if you, would like, if you think that our first priority in the war on terror, when we capture a terrorist, should be interrogating them for intelligence, not obtaining uh, evidence for prosecution, if you want to continue the approach to counterterrorism that has prevented us from being struck again as we were on 9-11, then I ask you to vote for our position. Thank you. Thank you, Mark Thiessen. Our motion is treat terrorists like enemy combatants, not criminals. We have heard the opening statement by the side for the motion, and now to speak first against the motion, I'd like to introduce David Fracht, who is a lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Air Force Reserve JAG Corps. That means he's a lawyer in the military. He served as lead defense counsel with the Office of Military Commissions. He represented detainees at Guantanamo. His most famous case is that of the teenager who was released finally after you made the case that his interrogation had been conducted improperly. David, I know it worked out well for him. Is it your view that that works out well for the United States? Absolutely. Uh, anytime an innocent man is, is, is released, uh, that's a very positive thing. And I, uh, Actually, the Department of Justice, after seven years, uh, acknowledged that actually he was not an enemy combatant, uh, and, and so he was sent home, and it was a great day for America. Ladies and gentlemen, David Fracht. Uh, I'm going to start by... By disagreeing, uh, it's there, our law enforcement is there to uh, detect crime before it happens. And we, we don't have to wait for a crime to be completed before stepping in. We've seen it over and over again where the uh, police or the FBI uh, breaks up a, a terrorist cell or dis- discovers a plot in progress or a conspiracy, and those people can be arrested, they can be interrogated, and those interrogations yield a lot of information. In fact, since 9-11, talking only about federal uh, prosecutions, over 400 terrorists have been locked up for an average of 20 years apiece. Now, contrast that with Guantanamo, which started with, uh, or at its peak, had 787 uh, detainees. The Bush administration ended up releasing over two-thirds of those when they realized they had no evidence against the vast majority of them. Another hundred were cleared for release before President Obama took over. Another hundred have been cleared for release now. So what's the scorecard now? We have uh, four detainees who have been prosecuted uh, successfully in military commissions. Uh, The Obama administration, after a year-long review, determined that there were 35 detainees that that should be tried in some criminal forum, and there's another 48 that they say are too dangerous. Uh, So we're talking about 83 people after after seven or eight years that they've decided are really the bad guys. And this is the danger of simply labeling people as enemy combatants. Uh, And and Mr. Thiessen acknowledged it. Uh, They want to go back to the program of the prior administration. And what did that entail? It entailed locking people up indefinitely, without charge, without access to courts, without access to counsel, subjecting them to a full range of interrogation techniques, uh, many of which are abhorrent to American values. And that's the system that that, uh, Mr. Thiessen would like to return to. Uh, And I I think it's a fundamentally un-American system. 
Um, and he talked about the fact that there hasn't been any attacks uh, as if this is proof that the, those uh, methods worked, and that's the reason we didn't have any attacks. Well, let me tell you why we didn't have any attacks. By treating terrorism primarily as a military problem, we started two voluntary unnecessary wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, and we presented the terrorists with hundreds of thousands of targets, American soldiers. And as bad as 9-11 was, and 3,000 people died on that day, but we have lost 5,700 American service members dead. Another 1,100 coalition members dead. Are we safer? That's the question you really have to ask. According to Mr. Thiessen, there were two little terrorist cells of al-Qaeda after 9-11. How many terrorists are there right now in, this, in the world or violent jihadists who are willing to strap a bomb to their bodies and kill Americans? We have essentially launched a global war, and that's what we called it, the global war on terror. But the Islamic world interpreted it as a war on them, and we have alienated tens and hundreds of millions of people unnecessarily, and we are not safer. David Fracht, thank you very much. At this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, our motion is treat terrorists like enemy combatants, not criminals. We have heard from the first two debaters arguing for and against this motion. Now, our third debater to argue for the motion, I'd like to introduce Michael Hayden. He is a retired four-star Air Force general and former director of the CIA. And, Michael, when you took over, the the interrogation program of the CIA that had been in place had just about been called to a halt under political pressure and other complaints. You decided to take a look at it again, commissioned your own review, which you undertook personally, and you concluded what? I spent the whole summer of 2006 getting what I would call a graduate degree on the CIA interrogation and detention program. I had no vested interest in what had gone on before. I could have chosen any course of action. At the end of the summer, in conscience, I could not just say, make it go away. It would have been a comfortable decision, John. It probably would have gotten credit in some circles, but it would have been immoral. Ladies and gentlemen, Michael Hayden. I became an advocate. My epiphany that we are a nation at war took place about 10 minutes after 10, September 11, 2001. It became clear to me at that point, and I believe in few things more firmly than I believe in the fact that we are a nation at war. A year ago, last August, August of 2009, I was in Phoenix. President Obama was addressing the VFW. He said, Quite clearly, we are at war with al-Qaeda and its affiliates. Now, I know most of the American population doesn't sense that they are at war. The American armed forces know that we are. The American security establishment knows that we are. The American intelligence community knows that we are. You, your political processes, have sent me, a career military officer, the director of the CIA, to war. You have told me to defend you. Do not take away from me the tools that I need to perform the service you demand. We need to uphold the rule of law. It just matters what model of law we are committed to upholding. Is this an issue best addressed through American criminal law, or is this an issue best addressed through the laws of armed conflict? I submit to you that it's only the laws of armed conflict that will keep you safe. This isn't theoretical for me. This was real. I had a meeting with my general counsel and his team at CIA about two years ago. I said to the team, our enemy is opening a new front. 
They are beginning to attack us in the American legal system. We worked our tails off in those judicial processes, specifically the habeas corpus, and we got to a point where we could go no farther. One of the judges demanded that we provide not him, but the defendant, the name and the identity of the intelligence source we had used in order to determine that he was a member of al-Qaeda. I know you don't live in the world I used to live in, but there is nothing that a director of CIA could do in those circumstances. You cannot let the world know that sources who risk everything, who risk all to work for you, will have their names revealed in the American judicial process to the individual that they have identified as al-Qaeda. That's unconscionable. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on America's shores. The motion is, treat terrorists like enemy combatants, not criminals. I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on America's shores. Our motion is treat terrorists like enemy combatants, not criminals. And finally, to speak against the motion, I'd like to introduce Stephen Jones, who is a managing partner of the law firm Jones, Ochian, and Davis. He has also defended a well-known terrorist, but not from the Middle East. He defended Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bomber. And uh, you were a public defender in that role, so you were assigned to him and he to you. I'm curious, did, did you want that case? When it came to you? Well, I wasn't a public defender. I wasn't even on the panel. I was appointed as a lawyer by the judges in the federal courts in Oklahoma City. And did you want the case? Well, when a judge or judges ask you to take a case, what you want or don't want is not relevant. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Stephen Jones. First of all, let me tell you that uh, I am a Republican. And I voted for George Bush both times, and I voted for John McCain, and yes, Sarah Palin, and I don't apologize for that. (laughs) I don't think the argument here is political. I think the argument is constitutional, and it basically boils down to how far we are willing to sacrifice our ideals, our beliefs as a nation for security. The issue, quite simply, is whether we are a nation of laws. And there are three reasons, compelling reasons, why you should vote against this resolution and vote no. The first is that the United States of America did not happen accidentally. There was a political deal, a bargain. The bargain was this, that the 12 states that participated in the Philadelphia Convention would surrender some of their rights, which they held very importantly, to a central government that they had no experience with. And in return for that surrender of their rights to that central government, that government would, as its first order of business, pass a series of amendments to the Constitution to restrict the power of that government which they had agreed to join. So the rights of freedom of speech freedom of assembly, the right to a fair trial, to due process, to protection against self-incrimination, to the assistance of counsel, the right to a public trial, the right to a speedy trial, all of those are in those first 10 amendments. By the Civil War, President Lincoln's address at Gettysburg and the passage of the 14th Amendment, we as a nation reaffirmed the ideal, which is due process of law. 
equal protection of all people under the Constitution. That is our ideal. That is the American experience, a written Constitution that limits the powers of government. Secondly, the United States is for millions, hundreds of millions of people in the world, their ideal. And what makes us special is that we try every day to uphold those ideals. And if we were to surrender even temporarily those ideals, if we were willing to say to these individuals who are charged, not convicted, charged with terrorist offenses, that we will be like Great Britain in Northern Ireland in the early 70s, and we will suspend these basic rights, we would lose many of the allies, supporters, and people who in their hearts look at the United States. And finally, having represented a terrorist, and before 9-11, the Oklahoma City bombing was the greatest act of domestic terrorism in this country. 168 people dead, 19 of them children under the age of six, 500 people seriously injured, and 30,000 who sought and received mental or emotional intervention. But Tim McVeigh was tried and convicted before a jury in a federal court. He had lawyers. He got a change of venue. He got a severance. He got the money through the federal system to pay his lawyers to investigate the case and bring witnesses to Denver, Colorado. Even though in the last days of that trial, the G7 summit was meeting in Denver. But in our country, our security forces, our law enforcement was able to provide both a fair trial for Tim McVeigh and protect the world's leaders meeting five miles away. The history of our country is on the side that Dave and I represent, and I urge you to vote no and to affirm the rule of law regardless of how despicable persons may be, for in the final analysis, the justice of a society is measured by how it treats its worst, not its best. Thank you, Stephen Jones. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan of ABC News. I'm host and moderator for this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. We are at the Skirball Center for the Performing Arts in New York City at NYU. And on our stage, four debaters, two against two, debating this motion. Treat terrorists like enemy combatants, not criminals. The team arguing for the motion include a former CIA director and a speechwriter for the Bush administration. Their opponents include two attorneys, one who works for the military and one who defended Tim McVeigh. We are now into round two. And my first question is actually to the side arguing against the motion. Your opponents include a former director of the CIA a speechwriter for the Bush administration who wrote his, the president's speech in which he discussed these issues, and he was briefed, as he tells it, extensively, and they are painting a very dire picture. And my question to you is whether they may just know more than you do. <laughs> David Fracht. Well, um... well no, I'm, I'm, I'm asking the question in a serious way. That, 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 to, to hear this director of the CIA say, this was on me. This was my responsibility. I not that I love doing these things, or any of us love doing it, but I saw, I saw the impact, and that's why I came to that decision. 
I think we need to be very clear about who we're talking about and, and, and define who we're referring to when we're talking about terrorists. Because from our perspective, we are not talking about people who are actually captured on a battlefield in Iraq and Afghanistan. There is no doubt that there is, in fact, an armed conflict going on in those places. And as a military attorney, as a judge advocate, certainly I acknowledge that under the laws of war, we do have the power to detain and remove from the battlefield people who are engaged in active conflict. The problem is that the war has been defined in such amorphous terms that there's a claim of a global battlefield, including the United States. Uh, people, if, if you're in the United States and you attempt to commit a crime, the United States really is not a battlefield. We, I reject that. So there is a limited group of people that, yes, if it's in an active war, in a theater of war, that they can be captured and removed from the battlefield. Um, but the solution, um, we have captured a lot of people. We did not screen them well. We sent people uh, who were brought in for ransom uh, without you know, any back-checking, fact-checking, and, and packed them off to Guantanamo. Uh, and that's something okay. that's unprecedented Let me, in let me bring history. Mark Tutson into it. I'd, I'd like to, I'm not a lawyer. Uh, you have an advantage over us, but I'd like to enter some documents into evidence tonight. The inaugural address of Barack Obama. Our nation is at war against a far-reaching network of violence and hatred. Please pass that to the other side. <laughs> Con- congressional authorization of use of military force passed by the, by the House of Representatives 420 to 1, Senate 98 to nothing. We are at war. Supreme Court of the United States in the Hamdi decision. We are at war. We can hold to people captured in the war as enemy combatants. And my final, piece of, ev- my final piece of evidence, my final piece of evidence, been Osama bin Laden's fatwa, which is entitled Declaration of War Against the Americans. What part of the war do you not understand? We are at war. The president, the Congress, the, the, the uh, Supreme Court, and the enemy all think we're at war, and you do not. Uh, I understand that we are at war. Um, my objection is to uh, the conduct of that war and the way that we have Uh, particularly domestically, are operating. Um, Yes, and I have freely acknowledged that we can detain combatants on the the battlefield. Um, Where there is a question about whether what their status is, then they're entitled to a hearing under the Geneva Conventions. At a minimum, they are entitled, all persons are entitled to humane treatment. Um, You know, Mark suggests that, that I, I, we want to broaden and expand rights. And, and you know, actually, that's not such a bad thing. Um, over time, history marches forward, and, and, and human rights uh, are expanded. Uh, and sometimes we extend those rights even to people uh, whom we despise. I'd like to go to the audience for your questions now. On the far side and the dark shirt, we've debated here and, and heard a lot pro and con, of whether they should be treated, captured in the way that they are treated as criminals versus combatants. What I haven't heard is a clear definition of what the treatment should be when it is declared that they are enemy combatants. In other words, are we looking at recourse under military commissions? So perhaps people can uh, clarify that for us. Thank you. Mark Thiessen, actually, I'd like to go to Mark because you just wrote a whole book about this. Enemy combatants, uh, when you capture somebody who is a member of al-Qaeda or, or the Taliban uh, or is carrying, or for example, just tried to set his underwear on fire on a Detroit airplane and blow up a plane over Detroit that could have killed hundreds of people, uh, our position is that that's an enemy combatant. And that person, when you take him into custody, the first words out of your mouth are not, you have the right to remain silent. 
this is the problem with uh, the difference between our approaches and practice, is that uh, they believe, because they're lawyers and this is the world they live in, that interrogate, the purpose of interrogation is to obtain evidence for a criminal trial. But the thing is, is that if you are trying to, if, if you take the law enforcement approach to interrogation, patience is a, is, is a virtue. You are trying to get evidence, and you can take as much time as you want. You build a relationship with the guy. You try and coerce him. You try and co-opt him into giving you information, fool him into giving you information. If you are trying to stop a terrorist attack, patience is deadly. When, when, he, when the, guy, the Christmas Day bomber was captured, he was supposed to be vaporized on that plane. As soon as al-Qaeda found out that he was, that he was alive and in U.S. custody, they started covering his tracks. Okay, so, I, I so you bring need in David to get Frack. that information quickly. Well, David, I, I'd David like Frack. to get back to the, the, the question, which, which is a good one. And given that uh, this is a motion that's been proposed by uh, our opponents, I thought that they would uh, try to define it. But actually what they're doing is, is, is constantly shifting back and forth. We have to differentiate between an active battlefield and what's going on. Uh, domestically. Now, Mr. Thiessen says that membership, if we pick up someone who's a member of Taliban or al-Qaeda, I mean, these people do not carry membership cards. And we also have to distinguish between al-Qaeda and Taliban. Um, the Taliban is a, is a for, fighting force in Afghanistan and Pakistan that just want us to leave. Um, they are not terrorists. Uh, they're not launching international terrorist attacks. Al-Qaeda is. Um, another thing that's important to talk about is when we, when we say terrorist, what they're really talking about are suspected terrorists, people that they believe may be terrorists. Now, if someone tries to light their underwear on fire in a plane, yes, you have a pretty good indication that they're a terrorist. But it's usually not that clear cut. It's usually based on some intelligence from some source or method that we're not allowed to know about that they suspect someone. Um, and... In that case, to simply lock that person up uh, incommunicado for potentially for years, if, if I'm understanding what uh, Mark is proposing, um, is, uh, is problematic. And we have gotten a lot of the wrong people. Um, in uniform, in the third row. I believe you're, are you, are you part of the West Point contingent? I am, sir. My name is Captain Welcome. Cinnamon Mather. I'm a judge advocate for the U.S. Army, currently assigned to the United States Military Academy in the Department of Law. Let me pose first. This comes in my personal capacity. I'm asking this question, not anything to do with Army or West Point. I fully acknowledge that you are more intelligent than I, that you have access to information I never will. My question comes in the fact that I've been to Iraq. I've been to Afghanistan. Without fail, every time I interacted with an Iraqi or an Afghan, their single question to me was this. How do you explain Guantanamo Bay? So... In the next year, as I leave for my third deployment, possibly, when I get out there or as I'm teaching my cadets, this is the way we do things because we're America. How do I justify us giving up the moral high ground? Yeah. Um, th- first of all, Captain, thank you for your service. Um, I understand the image of Guantanamo. And we had, we had serious questions inside the Bush administration about Guantanamo. Uh, I, I guess if you believe we're at war and that these are enemy combatants, we've got to put them somewhere. I'm not wedded to Guantanamo. I understand the image issue. But our right to detain them, I think, is unarguable under the laws of armed conflict. Mark Thiessen, do you want to join your partner I do want to jump in because I think uh, I thank you also for your service. But I think uh, my answer to you is what do you say is you should defend the other people in uniform who serve proudly at Guantanamo and keep this country safe. 
the, the fact is that most of those people are asking those questions because of misstatements, mistruths, and lies that have been spread about Guantanamo Bay. Um, the, every investigation into conduct at Guantanamo Bay has found that these allegations of widespread abuse are false. Brigadier Generals uh, uh, Schmidt and Furlow uh, did a careful inspe- in an investigation. No, quote, no evidence of torture or inhumane treatment at JTF Guantanamo. Navy Inspector General A.T. Church, who I interviewed for my book and who said he expected to find widespread abuse at Guantanamo, said that when he investigated, conducted hundreds of interviews, uh, interviewed detainees, interviewed, interviewed everybody who had been there, he said we can contact Confidently state, based upon this investigation, we found nothing that would any way substantiate detainees' allegations of torture or violent physical abuse at Guantanamo. Mark, uh, thank you. I, I, David Frack, do you want to respond? But I sort of feel the captain did your work for you on that well, question. I, I want to respond to a specific point made, made by Mark uh, about the, sh- the sh- reports, the investigations into detainee abuse at Guantanamo, and the claim that that they, they searched they, and they didn't find anything. Um, when I was representing Mohammed Jawad, a, a teenage boy from Afghanistan at Guantanamo, uh, a courageous uh, prosecutor by the name of Lieutenant Colonel Darrell Vandeveld turned over some discovery materials to me uh, that showed that my uh, then, at that point, 16- uh, or 17-year-old uh, client had been subjected to what was called the Frequent Flyer Sleep Deprivation Program. Um, and according to the Schmidt furlough report, uh, they had discovered that there had been a, a frequent flyer sleep deprivation program. And during this program, detainees were moved, and in the case of my client, 112 times from cell to cell during a two-week period. He was moved constantly back and forth uh, in an effort to deprive him of sleep. And so, uh, but according to the Schmidt furlough report, this pro- program had been stopped uh, after, after a complaint by the FBI and had been stopped in uh, March of 2004. Uh, the only problem with that was that my client had been subject to the program in May of 2004. And so I asked Colonel Vandeveld to continue digging, and he found additional records that showed that this program continued for at least another year, and dozens of other people were subjected to it. In fact, we had the person who ran the program came to testify at Guantanamo in a hearing that, that in which I was representing a detainee and said this was standard operating procedure. The generals knew about it. Everybody, everybody was vetted and approved. So these investigations were whitewashes. I tried to bring this to the attention of the Department of Defense. I filed a, a report uh, of a violation of the law of armed conflict, as is my duty to do as a military officer. What did they do? Nothing. No follow-up investigation. I was never contacted. So we have, we have a very basic disagreement about what we think is happening inside the walls of Guantanamo. You, you, you say that basically uh, there have been very few undocumented violations, and David is saying that these are whitewashes, the reports that say that. I think it's a shocking thing to say about Admiral Church and those people who are, who are people who wore a uniform with honor. Hold on. No, you talk. Now. Admiral talk. Church. No, 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 Admiral on. Church. No, actually, David, on, wait. Mark, no. respond, please. Let me, let me get a word in here, please. The frequent flower moment program you refer to, where someone is moved once every four hours, roughly, two to four hours uh, at that. What do you think these detainees in Guantanamo do all day? They're not busting rocks. They're not making a license plate. They sleep. They read the Koran. They play foosball. They play soccer. They, they eat whenever they want, sleep whenever they want. This is not torture, the, the frequent flyer. You may not like it, but I'll tell you something. People, the interrogation, interrogation techniques, even ter- interrogation techniques under the Geneva Convention, people would find shocking if you're not familiar with interrogation. Interrogation is not supposed to be pleasant. 
I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on America's shores. Four panelists are arguing for and against this motion. Treat terrorists like enemy combatants, not criminals. This is an Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan of ABC News, and I am serving as moderator as we debate this motion. Treat terrorists like enemy combatants, not criminals. Another question from the audience. And uh... um, A lot of the guilt or innocence of these suspected enemy combatants is a lot more nebulous than that of Abdul Muttalib. So I just want to know, on a very practical level, if we don't go through the criminal justice system, how do we know that they are terrorists? Um, the, first of all, it's not about guilt. Uh, the, you don't have to prove guilt. These are not criminal defendants. You have to have a reasonable uh, belief that these people were captured in the war and that they're members of al-Qaeda or the Taliban and were con- uh, conducting operations against us. The, the fact is, there are, we have detained in the war on terror well over 100,000 people. Only 800 made it to Guantanamo. Only 100 made it into the CIA program. These are, these are, we're not just picking up people off the street and throwing them in, in Guantanamo. Were, were there some people uh, that were sent there by accident that we made a mistake? Our enemy doesn't wear uniforms. They don't follow a chain of command. It's hard. There's some mistakes made, absolutely. And we had a process in, the, in, the, uh, in Guantanamo that was set up to review, their, to review the evidence against them and to make sure the people who were not, didn't belong there uh, were sent back. But, Stephen Jones. Well, I think, uh, Mark, the problem that I have and I think David is right, capturing people on the battlefield is different than arresting someone at the Detroit airport for committing or attempting to commit what is clearly a violation of the federal criminal law. Now, you cannot take that person consistent with the Constitution of the United States and Title 18, which is the criminal code, and try him other than in a federal criminal court according to the federal rules of criminal procedure and the federal rules of evidence, and to maintain That's absolutely wrong. that you can... Well, you're wrong. No, I'm not wrong. <laughs> the, we don't have just a, a minute, separate... Mark. We don't have a separate criminal justice system for people that commit crimes in the United States. Now, I will concede that in a battlefield situation, abroad or outside the United States, the line is blurry. But when you start saying that you're going to arrest people and try them in a military tribunal for crimes committed in the United States against American citizens, I don't think the American people will tolerate that. Stephen, you're completely focused on the criminal justice system. I don't care if we put Khalid Sheikh Mohammed on trial or not when we capture him. When Khalid Sheikh Mohammed is captured, I want to know what his plans for the next attack are. I want to find out what he knows. When Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was captured... If you were the one who was responsible for getting the information, the, he's captured, he's killed 3,000 people just, not, just uh, down the street from here. Uh, he is, admits to you that he has plans for new attacks in motion. Does Khalid Sheikh Mohammed have the right to remain silent? Well, of course he has the right to remain silent. The only difference between your position and mine is that you don't think that he should be told he has the right to remain silent. And I think it's beside the point because, of course, he knows he has the right to remain silent. So, so hold on. So you're, he does, so you're saying that if, let's say we captured Khalid Sheikh Mohammed before the 9-11 attacks, you would have allowed 9-11 to go on rather than get him to give the information that he had. Well, now, Mark, let's don't defend the indefensible here. It's not the indefensible. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed killed 3,000 people in this country. 
he had information about plots to blow up the library tower in Los Angeles, to blow up our marine camp in Djibouti. These are real attacks to commit repeat 9-11 in London. Well, he that has may the be right true, to but I don't want to take the weekly standards word for it, or frankly, your book. If all of that is true, then it can be presented to an American jury, and an American jury will convict him and give him the death penalty. What if That's the, the way we ticking, do things in um, this country. Uh, Stephen Jones, what if the clock is ticking in the situation that, that Mark just described, that you, you, you believe he knows about something that's about to happen, uh, we're five minutes away? Does it make a difference? Uh, those who look for a way to shortcut the system always first bring forward the most extreme example of what could happen. But the truth of the matter is those extreme examples rarely exist. David Fractor, you look like you want to add. Yes. Uh, I mean, the whole ticking time bomb scenario is really a red herring. Uh, first of all, uh, police uh, in the situation where there's an urgent public safety emergency are not required to give the Miranda warning. Uh, But if your question is, should we use torture in that situation? And that's essentially, uh, I think, what what Mark is is saying, is that, you know, in order to prevent an attack, you you have to be willing to do anything, whatever it takes. And that's where we have a fundamental disagreement. Uh, If we captured Osama bin Laden, I would not torture him. Is that possibly going to lead to an attack that might have been prevented? It it might. Are you okay with that? I, I am okay with it because it would be a great tragedy, but it would be a greater tragedy to go down the road, which we already went down, of torturing because that one attack may not be averted, but you are going to multiply the attacks for years to come because of the torture, and that is what we have done. Again, I'll, I'll, I'll come back and walk, if, if you like, a debate on a different subject. But as the only one on stage who's actually had the question in front of him as to whether or not to Ex- Except, Michael, that your, your partner brought these issues to the table himself in his opening remarks in, in, talk, in justifying and, and laying out veral, several scenarios in which the actual methods did do it. So I, I think they're relevant. I don't think it's, it's not a vote on that, but I think it's germane to understanding what the motion means. And I'd, I'd like to see if Mark could respond to what was just said, because it was fair. It was, I mean, this is where the rubber hits the road. Uh, David well, is basically... Well, actually, no, let me finish. Sure. Because the rubber hit the road in my car, all right? I'm the one who had to make the decision, okay? These are not easy decisions. There are conflicting values. No one should trivialize it. But I come back... But I come back to the fundamental question, Okay. I feel as if we have gone through the looking glass in the last 30 to 40 minutes as we try to take people who are armed enemy combatants. And, David, do not make the straw man that Iraq is okay to capture. It's not okay to capture and keep them as enemy combatants in Brooklyn. Okay? What about Maui? What about Djibouti? What about Yemen? What about Pakistan? They are enemy combatants. And as God is my judge, I will use the full authority that the law of armed conflict gives me as long as my president and my Congress has given me that authorization. And your partner, Mark Thiessen. I I would add to that simply, we're not going to have time to debate all the interrogation techniques. They were not torture. Um, And I can walk you through it if you really want to. But I'll tell you something. I'd rather not. Well, I'll I'll tell you something. You said something. I mean, this is you're sort of dismissive of the threat. Um, and in a very sort of disturbing way, you said, well, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd let the, you'd let the, you basically admitted you would let the attack happen and treat, and treat him as a criminal rather than an enemy combatant. You know, you said earlier when about my introductory remarks, two little terrorist networks. Well, you know what? One of those two little terrorist networks 
killed 3,000 people down the street from here. This is a real threat. These people are out there every day trying to kill us. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was captured in Pakistan. You said unless he's in Iraq or Afghanistan, he's not an enemy combatant. So do you consider Khalid Sheikh Mohammed an enemy combatant? The mastermind of 9-11, the man who commanded the operation, the operational commander of al-Qaeda, is he an enemy combatant, yes or no? How do you know that he's the mastermind of 9-11? What, what, oh, my gosh. He has not been put on trial, and you don't want to put him on trial, and you are denying those 3,000 victims... I'm not denying them anything. You are denying them. You say it's not important to have a trial. I say it is important to have a trial. It's not the first priority. It is important to establish the truth of what happened and for people to get some closure. And it's important for these people to be punished. I do not in any way diminish the seriousness of 9-11. And I agree with General Hayden that these are difficult decisions. And I'm not sure that I would want to be in the position he was in of having to make those. But what I would tell you is that the oath that we take, that we both took, as officers in the United States military, is to defend the Constitution of the United States. It is not to defend the people of the United States. Because what we are defending are our values um, and our history. And sometimes, yes, it may cost lives, but you cannot achieve perfect security. And when you try to, by uh, making shortcuts, you ultimately diminish us as a country, and it does not serve us in the long run. Question from the center. I think my question is for General Hayden. Uh, You and your partner have admitted that mistakes are sometimes made as to who does get picked up uh, as a terrorist. Uh, In the civilian uh, justice system, we say it's something of a cliché that it's better for a hundred guilty men to walk free than to convict an innocent man unjustly. What's your calculation in the war on terror? How many non-terrorists can be rendered off the streets of Toronto or Amsterdam to make it okay? Obviously, there's no precise answer to the question. We do the very best we can, and we review our data constantly. As I mentioned, we have combatant status review teams, even before we had the the habeas process uh, at Guantanamo. You go over the evidence routinely. It's required by our regulations. It's required by the regime that's in place at Guantanamo. I hope the audience is not not demanding 100% certitude and 100% perfection before your intelligence services or your military services can act in your defense. And that concludes round two of our debate. And here's where we are. We're about to hear closing statements from each debater. They will be two minutes each. This is their last chance to change your minds. You will be asked to vote once again immediately after they speak and to pick the winner in this debate just a few minutes from now. Our motion is... Treat terrorists like enemy combatants, not criminals. And first to summarize his position against the motion, Stephen Jones, who served as principal defense counsel for Oklahoma City bomber Timothy McVeigh. As we have listened to the debate tonight, I think two or three issues have emerged sharply. The issue is not just about the treatment of individuals at Guantanamo Bay. The issue is larger and that is, what is the system we will use to adjudicate the guilt of those persons charged with crimes against the United States? And I say that the line is indivisible. By that I mean you cannot say we have one set of justice over here 
for these categories of crimes. And over here, we have an entirely different rule of evidence and a different procedure. That leaves the intelligence community, who are largely anonymous, and many law enforcement officers, unaccountable in the final analysis for the decision made. In the final analysis, accountability for responsible decisions has to be made somewhere. Political process, a legal process, something done openly. But that is not what the argument is made by our colleagues to our right. Their argument is, trust us, trust us. We'll get it right this time. Unfortunately, history shows too many examples of not getting it right. That's why we have the rule of law. Thank you, Stephen Jones. The motion, treat terrorists like enemy combatants, not criminals. And summarizing his position for this motion, Mark Thiessen, a columnist for The Washington Post, a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and former speechwriter for President George W. Bush. Um, We did get it right. In the period, in the eight years before September 11, 2001, al-Qaeda killed roughly 3,500 people in a series of attacks, starting with the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, followed by the attacks on our embassies in Kenya and Tanzania, followed by the, uh, the, uh, the attack on the U.S.'s coal and culminating in September 11, 2001. That was when we followed the law enforcement approach uh, to interrogation. During that period of time, we prosecuted 29 people in connection with those attacks. And we didn't get the intelligence we needed to stop the September 11 terrorist attacks. In the period that followed, we have not been hit again. Um, so, so this is a very stark question. Do you want to go back to the, to the, to the approach that led to 3,500 American people getting killed and we were not able to get the intelligence to stop the attacks? Or do you want to follow the approach, uh, or do you want to follow the approach that kept our country safe for almost a decade? Thank you, Mark Thiessen. Our motion is treat terrorists like enemy combatants, not criminals. And summarizing his position against this motion, David Fracht, a lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Air Force Reserve JAG Corps who served as lead defense counsel with the Office of Military Commissions. Our opponents seem to value American lives more than the lives of anybody else. They seem to forget about Madrid, about London, about Bali. The terrorists have not stopped. We are not safer today than we were uh, on September 12, 2001. Let me tell you about my personal experience. I was assigned to represent two detainees at Guantanamo. Both had been determined to be enemy combatants in the combatant status review tribunals that you heard about. But in fact, neither was an enemy combatant. One, uh, Mr. Uh, Ali Al-Balul, was in fact a terrorist. He was a al-Qaeda insider. He was a media advisor and and created propaganda for al-Qaeda. He should have been tried in federal court uh, for material support to terrorism. He was not an operational terrorist. He did not kill any Americans. He did not plot any attacks on Americans. The other was neither an enemy combatant nor a terrorist. And that was, in fact, he was a child who had been tortured into confessing to something he didn't do. Um, A lot of mistakes were made The rule of law was not observed over time with the intervention of the Supreme Court. We gradually brought the pendulum back to uh, something approaching equilibrium. But they're advocating going back. I'm advocating going forward. Um, So we urge you to vote against the proposition. Thank you. Thank you, David Fracht. 
Our motion is treat terrorists like enemy combatants, not criminals. And to summarize for the motion, our final speaker, Michael Hayden, former CIA director and the country's first principal deputy director of national intelligence and the former director of the NSA. As I predicted and somewhat feared, we've kind of sidled into a discussion as to this is whether or not you are for or against the rule of law. I warned you that that was not the issue here that there is plenty of law within the laws of armed conflict to govern our behavior, and the American armed forces and the American intelligence community are quite capable and competent to function within that framework. Uh, The difference between now and 9-11 is that we are a nation at war, and we are taking the fight to the enemy. There's an office in CIA. It's the most operational office we have in our Langley campus. It's responsible for many of the things that the current administration is taking credit for. You walk into that office, you hit a bulkhead, a wall, and there's a sign there saying today's date, and you, you walk by it very often, don't really recognize it. But even now and again, you catch it, and it actually says today's date is September 12th, 2001. It's been up there for over eight years. When I was director and got in the car and drove down the GW Parkway to my home, it didn't feel like September 12th. It felt a lot like September 10th. That's an attitude that we adopt at our peril. Thank you. Thank you, Michael Hayden. And that concludes our closing statements. Our motion is treat terrorists like enemy combatants, not criminals. First of all... um, when I was going to say the rubber hit the road, it's rare that we actually, and I know that it's in your car, but uh, that we actually came to kind of a um, moment, I think, of really essential truth about the difference between the two sides. And it was, uh, I, I, I applaud both sides for going to that point and for a very, very spirited d- debate from, from both teams today. I'd just like to give them a round of applause. All right, I now have the final results. We had you vote twice, once before the debate, And once again, at the conclusion, we asked you where you stood on our motion, which is treat terrorists like enemy combatants, not criminals. The team that has changed the most minds, that has moved the most percentage points, will be declared our winner. Here is how it went. Before the debate, 33% of you were for the motion, 32% were against, 35% were undecided. After the debate, 39% for, 55% against, 6% undecided. The side against the motion wins. Our congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, presented by the Rosencrantz Foundation, was held at New York University's Skirball Center for the Performing Arts. Robert Rosencrantz is chairman. Dana Wolf is the executive producer. Maureen McMurray and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. And I'm your host, John Donvan. For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit www.iq2us.org. That's IQ, the number two, U.S.org. Intelligence Squared is distributed by NPR.